Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Jim and Bruce. Bruce, you practically gave my speech for me right there. I think you, you hit the high points exactly right. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here in Dallas. I think I'm in Dallas. I've been in a lot of places recently. Um, I, I'm not charging $25,000 for tonight. You'll be happy to know because I do have this book out. Actually, I was in Atlanta recently, and you, know, you all ever get those Google alerts, you know, when you, you know where you, news items maybe about yourself pop up? And uh, just before I was going to speak in Atlanta, I got one, and it was from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I thought, great, they've reviewed the book. But no, I was under the heading, free and cheap. <laughs> so tonight I'm free and not, not too cheap, I hope, but, uh, but free. Um, I thought I would start out uh, by reading a, just a couple of paragraphs, well, a little bit more than a couple of paragraphs, from the beginning of the book, partly because I really like the way I write, um, and also because it sort of sets the tone and the scene for the kinds of questions I was trying to address uh, when I started writing, the, uh, writing this. Um, the winter air is cold and the light hard-edged as the unmarked New York City Police Department helicopter meanders through the winds above the five boroughs. The morning is clear in a way, in that way, that is always a little heartbreaking if you were here on September 11th, 2001. There were police choppers in the New York sky then, too, but not like this one, which can see so much from so far. It is a state-of-the-art, crime-fighting, terror-busting, order-keeping techno toy with its enormous lens that can magnify any scene on the streets almost 1,000 times, then double that digitally, that can watch a crime in progress from miles away, can look in windows, can sense the body heat of people on rooftops or running along sidewalks, can track beepers slipped under cars, can do so very many things that the man in the helmet watching the screens and moving the images with a joystick in his lap, NYPD Detective David Shaw, is often a little bit at a loss for words. It really is an amazing tool, he keeps saying. On the left-hand screen is a map of Manhattan. He punches in an address on the Upper East Side, my address. The camera on the belly of the machine swivels instantaneously, focuses, and there on the second screen is my building seen from more than a mile away now, but also up close and personal from this surprising astral angle. The cameras and sensors are locked onto it, staying with it as the chopper turns and homes in. I am glad that I am up here looking and not down there looked at unknowingly. There is always an uneasy tension between the right to security and the right to privacy, and this morning I can feel it, can see it in bold relief as we fly only a few hundred feet above the city's highways and avenues, parks and alleys, museums, monuments, skyscrapers, train stations, hotels, stores, stadiums, stock markets, churches, synagogues, mosques, schools, and homes. All those homes. A city is not an abstraction like homeland. It is home, full stop, to millions of people. And if you live here and are part of it, what would you be willing to do to defend it? What wouldn't you be willing to do? 
New York City is the most target-rich environment for terrorists imaginable, a dense metropolis waiting to be ground zero. Yet from this height, it seems so peaceful. And this morning, in January 2007, it is. And for the rest of this year, it will be. How is, how is that possible? What does it take to make a city safe in the 21st century? And what, in particular, does it take to secure this city, which was, for so many generations, a maelstrom of crime and always an inviting target for mass destruction? So that was the kind of question I posed to myself. But you may ask why the Paris bureau chief of Newsweek was posing this, this question about New York in the first place. And the reason was that having covered a lot of terrorism, uh, having, covered, uh, having been in New York City on 9-11, uh, having then uh, covered the sort of the fringes of the Afghan war uh, from Pakistan uh, and then the Iraq war and the early days of the occupation of Iraq, uh, I was looking for some approach to fighting terrorism that didn't really rely on the military as its primary vehicle. By the time I started this book, we were spending, as indeed we still are, $2.5 billion a week in Iraq in order just to be there. Uh, whether that has helped in the war on terrorism, I sincerely doubt. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit later, but it's my opinion that we had basically won the fight against the people who carried out the attacks of 9-11 by the spring of 2003, when the CIA and the FBI and other agencies had rounded up all the key operational planners and architects of that attack, with the exception of bin Laden and Zawahri. Uh, so I was looking for an alternative, something that would be more sustainable, something that would be uh, an alternative to the military paradigm for fighting terrorism. And it became apparent that the best way to, or one of the best ways to do it might be what New York, New York City was doing, which was to be very focused, very pragmatic, look at the threat as realistically as possible on a scale that was relevant to the actual fight going on, and to use intelligence, particularly human intelligence, to address the problem of terrorism. Uh, as I got closer to the NYPD, I had actually known the commissioner of the NYPD, Ray Kelly, for several years, and he gave me very, very good access to look at this. It became clear that the New York Police Department is a kind of, has become a kind of a laboratory that not only local police forces, but even parts of the federal government look at as an example of what can be done right and, in truth, some things that might be done wrong in this effort to use intelligence-led policing and law enforcement to fight terrorism. So it started out as a policy book. But has, as often happens, sorry, I've got a cold and my, the Sudafed's kicking in here, so I'm going to have to take a, glass, a drink of water. But the... Uh, uh, the um, my father used to do these readings, but he didn't usually have water in these things. Uh, the, um, what started out as a policy book, as sometimes happened, was kind of taken over by the characters that I was reporting on, and two characters in particular. One is the police commissioner, uh, Ray Kelly. He's a fascinating guy. He is the quintessential New York cop. Uh, he has held every rank it's possible to hold in the NYPD, and he was commissioner in 92 and 93 when the first attack on the World Trade Center happened. 
Uh, he's also a Marine. He's a colonel in the Marine Reserve. Reserves. He's, he served in combat as a forward artillery spotter in 1967. This guy has seen war and combat not only in Vietnam, also in the streets of New York, going way back. But in 1993, he still believed that New York City would be fully protected by what the NYPD calls the three-letter guys, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, the federal bureaucracy. Um, eventually, he left the police force. He went into uh, the private sector for a while. Then he was at uh, the Treasury Department running the Customs Service. Eventually went back into the private sector. Uh, and that's where he was in 2001 uh, when, the, when New York City was hit. And, of course, he couldn't stay out of the action. It was, but it was very tough for him because he didn't even have a pass to cross the yellow tape to get down to ground zero. In fact, that was a practical problem for Ray because he's a very sharp dresser, and I saw him on TV the next day. He was starting to do commentary on TV about the situation. I said, Ray, that's really a good-looking suit. He said, good, I'm glad you like this because it's the only one I got. I can't get down to my apartment in Battery Park uh, to get the rest of my clothes. He was banned from ground zero himself. Um, so when then a uh, candidate... Michael Bloomberg, asked him if he'd be interested in coming back as police commissioner. He said, you bet. And when Bloomberg won, he had that opportunity, and he came back with a vengeance. He came back with one basic assumption, that New York City Police Department had to do a hell of a lot more and a hell of a lot better than it had ever done before in order to protect the city from terrorism. And the main thing it had to do was to, was to have a paradigm shift. This is the kind of thing that Bruce was talking about. It had to understand that it was not just in the business of catching crooks and prosecuting them and putting them in jail. It had to be in the business of preventing terrorism by penetrating potential terrorist cells and by breaking them up, by intimidating their members, by recruiting their members as informers, by doing all kinds of things. But it had to make that shift from prosecution to prevention. Uh, and he figured if he was going to do that, he had to have an incredibly effective intelligence division in the NYPD. Now, he did other things. He created a whole new bureau, a whole new division of the NYPD to pull together a lot of diverse counter-terror functions, everything from infrastructure protection to cooperation uh, with the uh, FBI and other groups on the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which is, since 1980, the classic way to coordinate between the federal government and, uh, and the NYPD. But he didn't like the uh, odds uh, for information sharing, the sort of the weight that the NYPD had on the JTTF, or the Terrorism Task Force, where of several hundred members, the NYPD had 17 detectives. So he put 130 detectives on it just to push the weight of the NYPD onto the JTTF. But these classic means of fighting terrorism, even though he pulled them together and coordinated them better, uh, were not going to be enough. He needed the intelligence division of the New York Police Department to be something really special. So he hired a man named David Cohen to run it. Now, David Cohen, anybody here been in the CIA? Would you admit it if you had? Uh, David Cohen 
in the mid-1990s, was the head of all clandestine services and operations of the Central Intelligence Agency. He was also probably the most hated man ever to hold that job because he had been on the outside the whole time he was inside the agency. He was always doing something a little different than everybody else. Uh, in, when he joined in 1967, six years after the Bay of Pigs, the CIA was still a very waspy, very Ivy League organization, and David was a Jewish kid from Boston who went to Northeastern University. He was an analyst, but in an in a analytical section that valued specialists. You were a Sovietologist. You were a Middle East specialist. You were a China specialist. He dealt with international trade issues, or well, oil trade among them, and transnational uh, questions, which now seems perfectly natural, but back then was seen as a kind of esoteric sidelight for most analysts. What happened was that as he was advancing his career, in his career, however, the agency started to fall apart. And by the 1980s, in the wake of uh, Irangate, uh, the CIA really was crumbling. A lot of people were questioning whether it should exist at all. And all those Sovietologists had somehow failed to predict the demise of the Soviet Union. Uh, all those Middle East specialists had somehow failed to predict that Saddam would actually invade Kuwait. Uh, it was discredited again and again, and its, counter its counterintelligence people had somehow failed to detect the presence of a man like Aldrich Ames, a mole in the midst of the operations directorate, uh, who, among other things, bought his, cash for, his house for $500,000 in cash without anybody noticing. Uh, so the agency was falling apart, and who did they turn to as the guy to, to fill the holes? David Cohen. His first job, and this is relevant uh, to what he would do later, specifically relevant, his first job in operations uh, was with what was called National Collection and National Resources, which is the CIA's operations, was at the time the CIA's operations inside the United States. You may think that the CIA is barred from working inside the United States. Actually, there are a lot of people in the FBI who think that too. But it does operate in the United States. Um, and it, it basically, its operations fell into two different categories. One was to debrief people who had been abroad. You know, a businessman had gone to the Soviet Union. He comes back. Guy calls him up, says, I work for the U.S. government. I'd like to talk to you about your trip. Who did you see? What kind of things are going on? Do you think the Soviet Union's going to collapse? Things like that. Uh, or maybe they didn't ask that question enough. And the other part was about developing agents of access. So you go into a community. Uh, Detroit had a very big CIA station, uh, relatively speaking, under unofficial cover, just a storefront in a shopping mall. Uh, and the function of the operatives there was to contact people in the Arab, among other communities, but particularly the Arab community in Detroit, a lot of whom were Lebanese, and in the late 80s, uh, a lot of those Lebanese, or the ones contacted, uh, had relatives and friends and contacts in Beirut, including in organizations like uh, the Amal Militias and Hezbollah. Well, this was a very important way that you could exploit 
contacts with people in this country to learn about what's going on in other countries and, in fact, establish relations with agents in other countries. So that was the good thing that he was doing, but when he got to, and he, was, he got a lot of credit for that, Cohen, but when he became the d- deputy director for operations uh, in the mid-'90s, things were so bad that they didn't, the people in the operations director, directorate didn't even refer to him as David Cohen. They referred to him as, well, it's sort of mixed company, expletive Cohen. Uh, and he was really amazingly publicly hated for a guy who was in the agency. Um, in the years since, Bob Bear, has he ever spoken here, Jim? Uh, Robert Bear, who's uh, written several books like See No Evil, and the movie Syriana is a highly romanticized version of Bob's life. Uh, in his first book, See No Evil, he devotes pages to how much he hated uh, Cohen. In 97, when John Deutsch went out as CIA director, uh, the New York Times specifically editorialized against Cohen and said, if we want to improve the agency, we've got to get rid of this guy. So here you have a man who spent 35 years in the CIA, and he's a conscientious guy. He's a good guy. He's a very, very smart guy, and he finds that he is reviled much more than he's revered by the time he finally retires in 2000. So Kelly had never really gotten to know him. He'd met him at a few conferences. But when he called up David Cohen in, the late, in late in 2001, and said, I need you to create something very special in the NYPD. I want you to create the kind of intelligence agency you always wanted to work for. Cohen said, i got to take a couple of days to think about this. And he called back less than an hour later and said, yeah, I'll do it. So in January of 2002, these two guys set about creating something completely new in American law enforcement, uh, a preventive, proactive uh, police force and intelligence organization. But how would they do that? Well, Cohen was kind of wondering how he'd do it, since he had 600 detectives in the, in the NYPD intelligence division. Actually, at that point, it was 650. But a lot of them had a reputation mainly as being walkers for uh, VIPs when they visited New York. And the intelligence division had no counter-terror function whatsoever. So he was like, this is a great idea. I really want to do this. But at that point, in the beginning of 2002, you had the World Economic Forum meeting in New York City. All the world leaders that would be the terrorist number one targets were all assembled in Manhattan. What is that, four or five months after 9-11? You had al-Qaeda trying like hell to mount a second wave of attacks against the United States. Uh, And you had a huge suicide bombing campaign going on in Israel. Uh, And whenever you have a lot of violence in Israel, there's a risk of it spilling over into New York City, which has the second, some would say, the the largest uh, Jewish population of any city in the world. So all of that was landing on Cohen's head, and he didn't have his organization together yet. So George Tenet, who by then was the director of the Central Intelligence, said, I've got just a man from you. And he sent a man named Larry Sanchez, who was one of the top operatives uh, of the CIA, 
to the NYPD, seconded to the NYPD, so that Larry could be read into all the intelligence that the CIA was getting at that point from captured members of al-Qaeda in, uh, in Afghanistan and in Pakistan, from the prisons there, from the black sites, even from some of the people who were being waterboarded. Uh, anything that was relevant to New York City's defense was going, as it were, straight from Abu Zubaydah's lips to Cohen's ear through Larry Sanchez. No, no other police force has ever had that kind of access to the CIA or that kind of relationship with it. But over the long term, Cohen had <clears throat> one central operating principle for intelligence sharing, and that is it's bull. There's no such thing as intelligence sharing, says Cohen. There's only intelligence trading. And if you don't have something to offer, you're not going to get what you need. So how is the NYPD going to have this something to offer that it needed? That's where Kelly came in. He said, look, New York City is probably the most diverse city in the world. New York City's population is 40% of it, 8.5 million people, 40% of them were not born in the United States of America. Now, some parts of the country that surprises people, maybe here in Dallas and down in Houston, that doesn't surprise people so much. But that's a lot of people from a lot of different places uh, living in New York City. Now, you can see that as a danger. Certainly, it could be a danger. But Kelly said, look, if we got that many people from all over the world, I can tell you the police force has always been an entry-level job for immigrants. They love to become cops, whether they were Irish, Kelly, whether they were Irish or Italian or German or Polish, through the generations for 100 years, immigrants have always joined the police force. That's still true. So let's see if among our sworn officers, we have people who speak the languages and know the cultures who will be useful to us in fighting terrorist organizations. And they asked for volunteers, and they tested them at Berlitz, and they wound up with 700 people who had native-level fluency in languages relevant to terrorism. Uh, different dialects of Arabic, Farsi, Dari, Bengali, Pashto, you name it. They had people who speak those languages. And all of a sudden, in a matter of a couple of months, they realized they had this resource that at that point the federal government did not have. You, you have to remember how unlinguistic, I guess we would say, America was in 2002. According to the 9-11 Commission, there's just a little footnote, but it's a stunning footnote. Uh, in 2002, from all the colleges and universities in the United States of America, there were only six graduates in Arabic. All the colleges and universities in the United States of America. So if you suddenly had 700 sworn officers of the law who could speak these languages, you had a huge advantage. And he knew that he could use this as a bargaining chip with the federal government. And indeed, very quickly, uh, you had the feds coming to the NYPD and saying, we'd like to use some of your people. But using them as translators and linguists isn't very interesting. 
Eventually, the CIA and the FBI, they got lots and lots of translators and linguists. The problem is having officers who know, know police work, who know interrogation techniques, who know how to do these things, who are native speakers, who really know their way around. And that was the advantage of the NYPD. And that's the core that they have built on ever since. Uh, in any typical uh, graduating class now, there are two graduating classes a year in the NYPD uh, Police Academy. In any of them, for the last several years, there have been at least 50, 50 different nationalities out of the 15, out of the 1,200 or so graduates. So this is something they've built on consistently. And what does it enable them to do? It enables them uh, to run undercover agents, which they certainly do. It enables them to liaise, have liaison with the communities that speak these languages. It enables them, their cyber unit, to go cruising Al-Qaeda and related websites with an efficacy that's really amazing. Because when the, typically you go on to one of these websites, and once you get to a certain level, there are screening questions in the chat room. And they may not even be presented as such. Somebody will say, isn't that a shame about that mosque that burned down last year on that street corner in Karachi? Well, the NYPD woman or man can say on the chat, in the chat room, what are you talking about? My cousin lives around the corner from that mosque, and it was still there when I visited him, visited him two months ago. So those, and, the, and then you get to the next level. So those kinds of things are, are hugely, hugely useful. But the other thing that they were able to do, which became very uh, important in the world of trading intelligence, was to start to use New York as a window on the world. There are, for instance, more than well over 100,000 Arabs just from Yemen living in New York City. You can certainly find out more about what's going on in Yemen in the streets of Brooklyn than you can in the streets of Sana'a or Aden. And all of this becomes stuff that the New York Police Department can use not only for its own resources to protect New York City, uh, but also to, uh, to trade with the CIA, with the FBI, with people from whom it wants information. Now, am I telling you that this is the paradigm? No, it's not the absolute best paradigm, although people like Bill Bratton, who was police commissioner in the mid-'90s after Kelly and who's now the, the chief of the Los Angeles Police Department, refer to the New York Police Department and its intelligence operations as the gold standard for fighting uh, terrorism, for municipal police fighting terrorism. Uh, but there are a lot of questions that it raises. There, one of the problems uh, that the NYPD and the FBI have again and again is that the NYPD, in its zeal for disrupting terrorist activities, often does things that look remarkably like what the FBI was doing in the late 60s and early 70s when it was faced with the problem of the Black Panthers and the Weatherman Organization and domestic terrorism in the United States. Uh, sowing dissent, sending in undercover agents, um, intimidating people, doing all kinds of things that um, could raise constitutional questions if they ever came to court, which was actually the big problem that the FBI had. They took those cases to court, and they couldn't get anybody convicted. You may remember the name Bill Ayers. Well, that's why Bill Ayers never served any hard time. It's because COINTELPRO had created a situation where you couldn't convict him. 
What the NYPD does is it just doesn't take these people to court. It just doesn't do it. Uh, and the, I think there's one case, one notable case, two guys, really stupid guys, who were planning to blow up uh, the Herald Square subway station in 2004. They were taken to court. But I, it's not because they were a huge danger to the community, although they could have been. I'm happier that they're in jail than out of jail. Uh, really, the NYPD took them to court because it wanted any potential terrorist group to understand that if there are three of you conspiring to blow something up, one of you is probably working for us. That was the message of that trial. Um, so there, there are these kinds of questions that come up, and you get to this day. I, I just got an email yesterday from an FBI uh, agent saying, you know, the, the NYPD, they're doing all kinds of things that we could never get away with and that, that really push the edge of the envelope too far. And I'm like, okay, give me the details. But they don't because the intelligence division just doesn't get caught. Where does that leave us in, uh, in the, uh, where we might take this, not only uh, in New York but in the rest of the country? Do we want every municipal police force acting like the NYPD? Well, first of all, none of them could uh, for a number of reasons. They don't, they don't have Kelly and Cohen, and that's important. Personalities are important. But they really don't have the size. The Dallas Police Department, I think, is fewer than 3,000 sworn officers. Uh, the LAPD, fewer than 10,000. San Francisco, 2,000. The New York Police Department has 35,000 sworn officers. Its budget is $3.8 billion. It spends $100 million a year, roughly speaking, on counterterrorism. Uh, nobody else can touch that. So you're not going to be able to do uh, exactly what the NYPD does. But the essential lesson, and this is where the laboratory of the NYPD is important, is exactly what Bruce is talking about. The NYPD was able to do, because it's a top-down organization, it was able to turn immediately from prosecution, a prosecution mindset to a prevention mindset and to use that to protect the city of New York. The FBI, still suffering hangovers from COINTELPRO and these other earlier scandals, can't do that. It tries. The director of the FBI has said again and again, we've got to do this. But you talk to the guys out in the trenches, and they will tell you again and again, yes, we have to do prevention, not prosecution, but we have to use the stuff that we gather when we're preventing to prosecute eventually. And that is hugely restrictive for them. Uh, but eventually, what we're going to see, and the brightest minds in, in the NYPD, guys like Sam Raskoff, who used to be a clerk for, uh, 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 for David Souter on the Supreme Court, and who speaks Arabic, and he's not even 35 years old yet. I mean, he's a disgustingly smart guy. He argues that what you're going to have to do is understand that the problem with counterterrorism and a lot of the problems that the Bush administration faced was tied to the idea of detention, of arrests and convictions. What we need is to orient ourselves toward prevention, and then we need to study, among other things, the New York City example, and see what kinds of really useful guidelines you can have. 
in order to do that. So you don't push the envelope too far. So you're not interfering with people's lives on a daily basis. So you're not just harassing anybody who goes to a mosque, uh, but that you're, you're actually doing what you need to do uh, to develop good relations with the community, good sources within the community, and good, uh, a good police intelligence operation that can penetrate even organizations that are hostile to you. Uh, and let's hope that we do that. I don't think we've gotten very far in that process. I was talking to a bunch of staffers, uh, Republican staffers, on the uh, uh, Home Security Commu Committee of, of the House uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they were like, they love the NYPD. They think what it does is just great. Uh, and I said, one of them was seconded from the Homeland, Department of Homeland Security, and I asked her, so why doesn't Homeland Security do this? And she said, every policeman in New York City answers to one man, Ray Kelly, and Ray Kelly answers to one man, Mayor Bloomberg. Department of Homeland Security answers to every member of Congress, every member of the Senate, every politician in Washington. She said, you, getting a, this kind of coherent policy out of DHS is almost impossible. So with that happy thought, I'll end my remarks and um, open the floor to questions. Yeah. Thanks very much. Uh, traditionally in New York City, the, the commissioner is appointed by the, the mayor. So if you look at, ahead, if, uh, when, when Bloomberg ends his tenure, what, what do you yeah. see happening? When is that going to be? Right, yeah. right. That's, that's the first question. But yeah. what do you see happening if, when Ray Kelly goes, uh, will this uh, survive? I, I end the book, actually, by suggesting I don't think it can survive in this form and maybe shouldn't survive in this form. Uh, I did something that you rarely do as a journalist. I just was totally out front at the end of the book and said, I came to trust Ray Kelly to do this and, Ray Co and David Cohen to do this, but I'm not sure I would trust anybody else to do this. And if you want to really sort of worry some thought, imagine if you had all this power vested in the NYPD and its intelligence division and the commissioner's name today were Bernard Carrick. That would not be a good thing. So, uh, but the other thing is that, that in fact, uh, the resources for this are dwindling fast. The tax base of New York City is going down the tubes. Um, Ray Kelly is a big believer in boots on the ground. Uh, and he worked hard uh, when he was a deputy commissioner and then the first time he was commissioner uh, to get the number of cops uh, increased. In fact, I know you were telling me earlier that your uncle uh, was the police commissioner in 1975, 76, 77 under, uh, when New York City was bankrupt, which is sort of the direction it could go in now. Uh, and they laid off uh, thousands and thousands of police, 5,000 police uh, in 1975. And in 1977, when there was a blackout in New York City, the place degenerated into chaos. Uh, if you contrast that with 2003, when there was a blackout in New York City and it degenerated into a big block party, it's a very different kind of environment. 
But the difference, Kelly will tell you, the difference is essentially that there are cops out on the street. Now, what will happen, this is a long answer to a very succinct question, but what will, it's an important point. What will happen if crime starts to rise in New York City and there's no more terrorist attacks is people will say, why do we need to spend all that money on counterterrorism, especially to unaccountable counterterrorism? You know, a lot of you are in police and law enforcement here, and you're familiar with the system that Bratton put in, the NYPD, and it's now copied all over the country, the CompStat system, which is a system of accountability based on, uh, largely on arrests. Uh, well, since the NYPD Intelligence Division has 600 detectives who never arrest anybody, it's exempted from CompStat. So how do you really judge its value? Right now, Kelly judges its value, and Bloomberg judges its value. But if the taxpayers start to judge its value at a time when they're getting mugged walking out of their apartments, it's not going to seem so valuable. So this is, this is going to be a big problem. Uh, and I think that this kind of, these kinds of cutbacks in security, uh, which are going to happen all over the country, uh, are another reason we're going to have to do some really quick rethinking of the way we use our resources to deal with terrorism. Uh, the local police ought to be the key to dealing with, uh, with terrorism inside the United States because they're the ones on the ground. Uh, maybe, Bruce, you can tell me the exact number because I see different numbers, but there's something like 700,000 cops in this country, uh, police and uh, sheriff's uh, officers, and, uh, and they're the ones who know the communities. And if they have good relations with those communities, they're the ones who see when something's going wrong or are informed about it when something's going wrong. But you need to wait for the microphone. Kind of a follow-up question to that one. Do you have any suggestions for performance measures for these type of activities? Because like you mentioned, they're not making arrests and they're not making things that are countable. How do you show accountability and, I guess, progress. It's kind of like, you know, it's a disaster. If you have an event, it's automatically going to overwhelm your resources and you failed. If you don't have an event, why did we spend all this money on this staffing and these people and these equipment and these exercises and these training? So do you have any suggestions about maybe a, kind of a different paradigm of things to count, to send to the bean counters to show that you these, know, I think that I, I don't have any suggestions, and I don't think they have any very good suggestions. I know they're working on that. Uh, every time I see Kelly or Cohen, I'm like, so what are you doing? Oh, we're institutionalizing, they say. Institutionalizing means, of course, finding ways to count these things. Um, but they haven't really found any good, any good examples. They, basically, they'll say, we haven't been hit by another terrorist attack. Well, you know. Ultimately, people just get complacent, and I think that's really going to be a problem. I don't think there's any good way to qu quantify it. Uh, you started out uh, pointing out, saying that there was a shift from uh, fighting crime to fighting terrorism, but as I think about it, there's a lot of parallels between terrorism and organized crime and drug networks. Uh, what kinds of lessons can be learned from what NYPD has done for counterterrorism to apply to organized crime and drug networks? <coughs> well, what I actually said was there's a shift from prosecution to prevention. Uh, sure, you can try to prevent crime. That's a laudable thing. But the, 
the essential presumption of a prosecutorial mode is that jail time is a deterrent, that you don't want to get caught and sent to jail. And therefore, you prosecute the bad guys, and if you prosecute enough of them, eventually you keep order in your society. Uh, and that's a, the presumption on which law enforcement has been based forever. If you got guys who are going to blow themselves up, however, that's not really a deterrent. Uh, and that's why you need to, to penetrate these organizations and get inside these organizations, and this is the trick, even before they've done anything. Uh, there's a, a very interesting testimony by Larry Sanchez a year and a half ago in front of Congress where he talks about protecting New Yorkers from themselves. Uh, it's kind of disturbing, really, where he's basically saying, we'll identify these groups, we'll penetrate them, we'll disrupt them, we'll intimidate them, and they won't blow themselves up, so we're safer, and ultimately, they're safer, and that's better. That's not going to work with organized crime. It's a different kind of paradigm. But obviously, the whole business of recruiting informers, penetrating organizations, can be very helpful. And there's a, there is a whole school of thought uh, being pushed by, among others, uh, uh, a very influential French criminologist named Alain Bauer, who's a very close friend of Kelly's and Cohen's, um, that says, basically, you're going to have more and more of a confluence, a coming together of organized crime, uh, people operating in failed states, uh, and different kinds of would-be and real terrorists, uh, and that it complicates the landscape all the time more and more for people who are fighting, uh, fighting against terrorism. And to some extent, you have, uh, you have the two things coming together. I mean, overseas, it's easy to see, for instance, that if you're penetrating the opium trade, the heroin trade that is operating out of and through Afghanistan and Iran, you are also going to be encountering Taliban, radical uh, Iranians, and people who may be of interest to you in, in terms of terrorism. So there's all that. But I think that the, you can't prevent organized crime with the same kinds of techniques that they, uh, that they use uh, in the NYPD. There's something that probably I should explain. The, Cohen's analysis is that the basic threat of Islamist terrorism is essentially three-part. One is core al-Qaeda, what's left of those guys up in Waziristan or wherever the hell they are. Uh, and they are sitting there dreaming of another 9-11. And they are praying that they will get a nuclear device somehow. And fortunately, their intentions are, do, are not matched by their capabilities. But they would really like to do this stuff. Uh, and if anybody can do it, it will be those guys. Um, then you have homegrown terrorists, like the idiots who wanted to blow up uh, the Herald Square subway station, who sit around and watch uh, videos, DVDs, uh, propaganda on the web. Uh, they're convinced that all Muslims are being persecuted everywhere in the world, uh, that America is the great center of evil, that maybe that it, there will never be peace in the world until Americans feel the pain they inflict on the rest of the world, and so on and so forth. But they don't really know how to do anything. 
and then you have what may be the most likely groups, what are the most likely groups, and what are certainly the most dangerous, groups of homegrown terrorists who establish contact with training camps in Pakistan or Kashmir or, uh, or in um, Afghanistan or other places, conceivably Somalia, any, any number of places, and who are actually trained in how to carry out these attacks. Uh, and the classic example of that, and sort of a, a really a paradigm for this, is uh, the attacks on the London subway system uh, in 2005, in July 2005. You had one group uh, on July 7th that carried out an extremely successful operation from the terrorist point of view, uh, because two of its members had trained in Pakistan, and they knew how to build bombs. And then you had a second group uh, where they tried to do exactly the same thing two weeks later, and amazingly, the police were still not prepared for them, but all of their bombs fizzled. None of them had been in any training camps. Uh, so that, that combination of foreign influence and expertise and training with homegrown terror is the thing that the NYPD uh, worries about the most. Um, and I'm rambling on, and I probably have lost track of your question, but that, that was just a point that I thought probably I should make. When, when a potential terrorist, terrorist group has been identified and the group is penetrated and clearly they plan to carry out an attack, if they're not being prosecuted and incarcerated, what's happening to them? Um, after, I mean, this is the end of a long book tour, so stop me if I've already said this. But did I talk about going onto the subways and how they use the subways? Uh, to the, the, the local police have something that the FBI and the CIA don't have, which is a lot of coercive power that's not necessarily directly related to or not related at all. So in the intelligence division of the NYPD, what they'll talk about is if you've got a group like this, a group where, of young guys that you think have really ginned themselves up to make a lot of trouble and, and are about to move from anger, which is widespread and commonplace in a lot of communities, to action, which is fairly rare, what do you do? Well, one of the things that they'll do is send follow a guy onto the subway and send a uniformed cop up to him who will say to him, you, you are sitting on two seats there. You know that's illegal in the city of New York? You're coming down to the station. And they will arrest the guy for sitting on two seats in the subway. Once they get him down to the station, they say, we know a fair amount about you. What do you think your friends are going to say if we tell them you've been down here talking to us? And once they start to employ those kinds of techniques, that's just a simple version, uh, essentially they're trying to do one of several things. Intimidate if it's some 18-year-old punk who just thinks he's going to be a great jihadist, they're going to scare the wits out of him, and he'll probably go home to his mother. Another kind of personality, they're going to recruit and send him back into his organization. And these are the kinds of things they do. And they say, again, it's hard to quantify, they say that they've done this, similar kinds of things, many, many times with many groups, and that they basically don't reform. It's a form of psychological operations that's very effective. Obviously, if they're looking at a group that they're finding it impossible to penetrate and they think it's going to be dangerous, directly dangerous, uh, then, then they will move toward prosecution. 
but probably the intelligence division will try to stay out of it. Uh, and some other part of the NYPD will move in, or the feds will do it. The FBI will do it. We have time for two more questions. Sir? Um, oh, Chris is okay. Sir is okay. Um, could you tell us, in your opinion, why you think in the last eight years we have not had another terrorist attack, another major terrorist attack? Yeah. Uh, I think that in the initial reaction after 9-11 by the CIA and the FBI was tremendously effective. And I think that al-Qaeda, uh, loose-knit though it was, essentially depended on a handful of geniuses to pull together 9-11. Very, very smart, inspired, ruthless, horrible people. But just a few. They're all at Guantanamo now. And they were all rounded up by the CIA and the FBI and other uh, three-letter guys uh, in the 18 months after 9-11. From Abu Zubaydah, who was caught in 2000, early 2002, to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was caught in March of uh, 2003. And once you had all of those guys, those operational guys, those architects of 9-11, it was very, very hard for, uh, for them to reconstitute the capacity that they'd had. But even before then, when Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was living in Karachi and planning the second wave, trying to carry out the second wave, uh, it's impressive. One, one of the, there's a whole chapter devoted to the, to the second wave and why it didn't happen. And essentially it didn't happen because once Mohammed Atta was gone, who was a very disciplined organizer, they didn't have anybody to replace him. And Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's bench was really thin. And you read, the, you read what was going on with the people that he was trying to use to carry out the second wave, and you see him scrambling around one plan fails, he comes up with another plan, with another plan. And, you know, they're, they're all losers, terrible losers. Uh, if you want to really, there's a thing called Substitute for Testimony by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. It was used in the trial of Musawi, who some people thought was the 20th hijacker, but actually he was involved with another plot, second wave, as a matter of fact. Uh, and, you know, you see Khalid Sheikh Mohammed sending him to Indonesia in Hanbali, the operative in the main Al-Qaeda-linked operative there, is saying to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, this guy is nuts. Take him back. We don't want him. Uh, you see Khalid Sheikh Mohammed uh, has two guys, he decides, in December of 2001 that he's going to have them blow up planes with explosive uh, tennis shoes. One of them is a reasonably intelligent guy named Saad Bajat, and he finally, about a couple of weeks before the operation, sends a little tentative email saying, I don't think I want to do this. And he's reasonably intelligent. He's not so smart that he got rid of the shoes. He kept them in his closet where they were eventually found by authorities when they tracked him down. But the other guy was Richard Reed, who's got, I mean, his whole plan is about lighting the fuse on his shoes, right? He doesn't bring a cigarette lighter. He brings wet matches from a cheap hotel, and they don't ignite. He was wrestled to the ground by the stewardess. 
you know. So you've got the you've got actually this incredible record of idiocy among the terrorists, and you take away the planners, you take away the capable people, and America is a lot safer. And that's why we're safer. That's why we're safer. And everything that the NYPD has done, the the risks that have come since have essentially been these homegrown or or hybrid homegrown groups ever since. Uh, at least the risks in Europe and the United States. And that's why there's so much focus on them. Uh, and, there, and then there, there's also the question of, to the extent that people are still beholden to uh, al-Qaeda in Waziristan, um, there is even one account that says that Ayman Zawahri stopped a plot to release cyanide gas in the, uh, in the New York City subway system because he didn't think it was spectacular enough. These guys have a real Hollywood mentality. Uh, when, you, know, you know the films of Roland Emmerich? You all know his films? Independence Day, remember, where the space guys come down and blow up the White House and stuff? Khalid Sheikh Mohammed loved that film. And he also loved the Abu Zubaydah, who was one of the first guys that was caught of the sort of more or less senior al-Qaeda leadership. When he was being waterboarded, he kept talking about the bridge in the Godzilla film. That's another Roland Emmerich film that actually nobody ever saw, I think, in the United States with Matthew Broderick. It was a remake of Godzilla and the climate. Yeah, they just love those films in Afghanistan and Pakistan. I don't know why. They love these, like, spectacular, stupid films. And uh, it was a Brooklyn Bridge. But it took, it took people a while to figure that out because none of the feds uh, had seen that film. Uh, but... So the big al-Qaeda leadership loves to do the spectaculars, but these homegrown, more homegrown types, they do what they can do. And that kind of threat is very, very scary because what they can do is attack infrastructure, including and especially subway systems, commuter rail systems, which are hugely vulnerable. And uh, you have to have a combination of great intelligence and deterrent force to stop that from happening, and not only in New York City. I took the Acela, the high-speed train from New York to Washington the other day, and uh, we were stopped. The train just quit running, <laughs> you know, high-tech. Uh, it just quit running at one of the stations, so we had to wait for another train to come. And the guys on the platform were armed to the teeth. They were in full battle gear. Not because there was a proximate threat, but it's sending the message to anybody, don't even think about this. So all of that contributes. But just to answer your question briefly, the activities from September 2001 to March of 2003 were the key to keeping the country safe. Let's give a large, great hand. Oh. Last night I was reading The Economist, and this was just one of the many reviews about securing the city. In a vivid and thought-provoking book about the years since the Twin Towers collapsed, Christopher Dickey analyzes the New York Police Department. Also, this notes that he is one of the most knowledgeable commentators in the Middle East. I've known Chris Dickey for a number of years. You all have seen him on TV. You've read his articles in Newsweek. This book really deserves to be in your library. It's also published by Simon & Schuster, I might mention, one of our best friends at the World Affairs Council. So I hope you'll consider purchasing tonight's book. And thank you very much, Chris, for being with us. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www 
dfwworld.org.